Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review Podcast. I am your host with the most, the beast not from the Northeast, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer. I am the editor of Book and Film Globe, which you can find at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and lots more. This week we have a great show coming up. Book and Film Globe's chief film critic Stephen Garrett will be here to discuss Venom, Let There Be Carnage, the latest Marvel Comics movie adaptation. Yes, another Marvel Comics movie adaptation. It's Marvel's world. We only live in it. I'm going to talk about the Apple TV Plus adaptation of Isaac Asimov's Foundation books. And that's every bit as ponderous and dark as you might imagine. Pablo Gallagher is going to come by as well to talk about Midnight Mass, the new horror show. That's airing on Netflix, very popular. And But first, we're going to talk to Chris Farnsworth, Book and Film Globe contributor and novelist, about Anthony Doerr's new novel, Cloud Cuckoo Land, which is getting a lot of attention. And we're going to lead off this week with a little snippet from The Rolling Stone singing, Get Off of My Cloud. The book has cloud in the title. The song has cloud in the title. That's the kind of clever high-end content you come to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast for. Enjoy the show. Joining me today for the first time ever on the podcast is Chris Farnsworth. Chris is the author of six novels, including Flash Mob, Kill File, and The President's Vampire. His work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, The New York Post, The All, E! Online, The Washington Monthly, and The New Republic, and of course, Book and Film Globe. He's also written screenplays and comic books. Chris, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So this week you wrote a review of the new Anthony Doerr novel, uh, Cloud Cuckoo Land, which has been getting a lot of um, attention. Right. This is a, uh, I, I wouldn't, I guess you'd call it a dystopian novel in, in some ways. Why don't, you, why don't you explain to us a little bit about what this thing is is doing? It's a really, I mean, it's a massive book. It's uh, like 640 pages, and it's uh, a highly anticipated follow-up to All the Light We Cannot See, which um, is still a bestseller. I mean, it's been on the it's been selling so well for so long that they just leave it off the lists now. And so everyone was very, very excited to see Dor come out with a new book. And um, Cloud Cuckoo Land is, it's so much. I mean, it's so much. It's the story of five characters over centuries. There are two characters who uh, live at the fall, at the time of the fall of Constantinople in 1453. There are two characters who live in Lakeport, Idaho in 2020. And there is a character who lives in the next century who's in an arc traveling to a far distant planet uh, because the Earth has been burnt and destroyed by uh, climate change. Now, a couple so, of things, a couple of things here. Now, I, I actually have not read All the Light We Cannot See, but I am under the impression that it is not a sci-fi fantasy dystopia book. I, I, I got the sense that it was, uh, it was based more in, in realism. Right. Yeah, it's a very it's yeah, it's a very grounded book uh, between, you know, talking about World War Two uh, and the interactions uh, between the characters there, uh, including. Uh, and so it's it doesn't have spaceships in it, which is going to be I mean, it, I think that's going to be harder for some of uh, some readers and some critics. Spaceships tend to make people nervous when they get touch literature. So. 
Right, and you actually, you know, you tend to uh, recommend you you recommend books to me uh, often. I often re- read the books you recommend because they often do have spaceships or monsters in them. <laughs> and, right. Which I appreciate because I, I read a lot of literary fiction that bores me to death. So right. it's interesting to me when a writer like Anthony Doerr, um, who is a literary writer, uh, decides to go in the in the sci-fi and fantasy realm. You know, th- this book, I, again, I haven't read it yet, yet, but it reminds me in its concept, and you mentioned this in the review, of David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, which is right. another another book that um, sort of portends the e- end of humanity and ties us all together through these gossamer threads of time and history. Exactly. And I, yeah, it's 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 drawn a lot of comparisons to Mitchell in that, um, not just for the title, but also because it takes place over so long and it casts itself forward into the future. Um, I love Mitchell. I'm an unabashed Mitchell fan, so I like that about this book. Uh, but yeah, the, you touched on that. I mean, literary and genre have been at war forever. And Kurt Vonnegut used to complain about it all the time, that if he mentioned anything slightly fantastic, he was dismissed as just another sci-fi writer. I think you're seeing a little of that backlash in some of the reviews, like the one in The New Yorker. Um, I think that, you know, fiction ought to encompass everything. I mean, I like, yeah, like you said, I love spaceships. I love explosions. I love monsters and genre. But, um, Mitchell shows that all of that can be included in uh, in uh, literature. It could literature encompasses all of that. Well, I mean, problem- Thomas, yeah, Thomas Pynchon was including, you know, allusions to Superman and gravity's rainbow. And that's that's literature that that in, that's part of it. Right. Well, the problem with, quote unquote, literary fiction is that it's often very boring. And the right. problem with genre fiction is that it's often very cartoony <laughs> and stupid. Right. So- right. You know, with, and that you know, it lacks subtlety in its characterization. A lot of times, the writing is clumsy. You know, the transitions are awkward. There's all there's like long italicized, you know, sections, and the narrative jumps around. So it's interesting to me when a writer who can clearly play in the literary field decides to go genre. You know, yeah. it's something that, you know, and I, as I, you know, you and I both try to do on our own novels. Like I try to. Um, use literary techniques in my writing, but I also try to write something that is entertaining and fun and, you know, could possibly turn into a movie. (laughs) Exactly. That's the hope. Um, Yeah, that's what I'm, I I want as many people as possible to read my work and I want people to enjoy it. I don't want it to be a slog to get to the end under any circumstances. And I think, you know, bad writing is just bad writing. There's, you can see that both in literary works, literary novels, and yeah, I hope you can hear the air quotes in my voice and genre novels. Uh, what, like when I was, when I was in college, everybody worshiped at the, um, the church of Raymond Carver, uh, for good reasons. I mean, his, his short stories are beautiful works, but I was always, I always felt really constrained by that because they were so small. I mean, they were, minimalist in every sense of the word they took place in a living room and it was just so cramped and confining which is why i love books like cloud cuckoo land because they take big swings they go they go out there and they try to tie together all different varieties of imagined and real human experiences that's that's what you know novels ought to do now i i again i haven't read cloud cuckoo land i did read Mm -hmm. cloud 
Yes, and, and I saw the movie, and you know, and I admire that sort of David Mitchell extended universe. But at the same time, a lot of times when I read stuff like this that tries to tie together all these threads through, through history, I'm just like, come on, man, <laughs> what are we doing here, really? Like the siege of Constantinople and Ark heading, you know, and it's right. like, and, and and I. I mean, again, like you obviously love this book, and as right. you point out in your review, it, it moves very fast. It's very well written. It's extremely well researched. So obviously, we recommend it. But mm -hmm. I find myself thinking, like, oh, is the world going to end again? What do sure. you know? <laughs> oh, here we no, go. I mean, yeah. I mean, part of, I think uh, you know, like Ron Charles in the Washington Post today wrote about uh, Cloud Cuckoo Land, and definitely agrees with you. He thinks it goes on way too long. He thinks it could have been split into five different novels. Um, or agrees with, you know, and there are, there are definitely novels that work like that. Uh, I think that's, if you're kicked out of the story, then the novel's not working. Um, this really worked for me because Dora is so good at tying all this stuff together, but also because each story is interesting enough on its own. That's yeah. why Cloud Atlas works because, you know, each individual story is pretty entertaining and gripping and you're able to forgive the sort of like oh are we really all connected throughout time stuff i mean you know i i don't i don't i don't particularly believe that <laughs> i but you know it, to me the re, the real uh you know the real dystopia is not that the world is ending it's that it's not going to end <laughs> right right it we never just have to keep living with this over and over that's i think that's never part, kind yeah, of that's kind of part of the message though of cloud cuckoo land also though is that the world is always ending and we always have to live with it. One thing I've done a lot of in my work and my research is I've researched a lot of apocalypses. You know, I mean, there are people at the turn of the last century who put uh, the turn of, I'm sorry, the turn of the 19th century to the 20th, who put coffins on the roofs of their houses because they believed Jesus was going to come down and take them out of them. And and that because the 1900 was the last millennium and it was the second coming. And did he? Did he do that? And apparently not. No, apparently it didn't. The world did not end. Just checking. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it's easy to believe that the world's ending though if there's a an army with a, a siege engine at the walls of the last remnants of the Roman Empire and it's it's knocking down your door. Um, it's easy to believe the world's ending if you're in the middle of World War II and there's an army that's you know ravaging Europe. It's there are all kinds of apocalypses. Or, or if a virus escapes from China, or if Australia catches on fire, right? Some, someone drops an atomic bomb on a Japanese city, et cetera, et cetera. But yet, yeah. you know, here we here we are. The human population is larger than it's ever been. Right. Right. So, I and that's know. that's another. I think that's another really good, really good moment, moral message. I don't know whatever you want to call it in the in the book is that humanity is not. The problem. I mean, one of the characters, Seymour, who I really I didn't like. It was hard for me to be sympathetic with him because he reminded me a lot of myself when I had just read Edward Abbey for the first time. You know, and I was like, oh, this is this is really Seymour yeah. is like a, is like a young eco terrorist type. Right. Right. He thinks humanity is the problem and humanity's humanity is not the problem. Humanity is a part of the world and finding out how to live with it. That's all any of us are trying to do. Yeah, well, fair enough. And Cloud Cuckoo Land uh, gets gets your highest recommendation. You know, the I'm trying to remember the last book you recommended to me was uh, was uh, Max Brooks's Devolution. That was the Bigfoot novel yes. that you you wrote up for us. I loved that. And then there and, and it, yeah, that was that was a great book. So um, I'm gonna have to uh, put this in the queue at the library. I'm guessing at this point, it's that means I'll probably read it sometime 
you know, next May. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's probably. fine. I, I've got other things to do. There, there's a new season of Succession coming out on HBO. I'll be busy. But Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr is now available in bookstores and libraries and anywhere where you can uh, find literary material. And Chris Farnsworth, thank you so much. Uh, we look forward to your next piece. Thank you so much, Neil. Appreciate it. Book and Film Globe Chief Film Critic Stephen Garrett joins us yet again. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Stephen has reviewed this week the new superhero comic book movie, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. I was expecting an absolute pan from Stephen because, well, A, the other reviews have not been so hot, and B, the original Venom movie, which came out a few years ago, I've been working with him for a while, that was one of the the harshest reviews he's ever given a film. And yet, surprisingly enough, Stephen, you seem to like this new Venom movie fairly well. I mean, uh, maybe I'm getting soft or maybe it's worn me down, but, uh, or maybe it's just the, <laughs> the soft bigotry of low expectations. But I was pleasantly surprised. And, you know, I always, uh, if I catch myself watching a film and, uh, like, laughing at a point in which they want me to laugh or I get, they get a reaction from me that they clearly want to have other than just cringing in horror or, you know, um, flinching. Uh, I, I can't, I can't hate it. I can't hate it. Especially I found myself quoting the movie the next day. So I was like, I, I actually cannot hate this movie. There's no way. It's almost tragic that they forced you to react to a movie like a normal person and not a professional <laughs> film critic. So, so the first, the first Venom, the first Venom, you really were on because it was kind of needlessly gory. There are lots of scenes of people's heads being bitten off, and it was it was just kind of this like gross body horror thing. But apparently, the new one has has done a little bit of a course correction and and fixed some of the problems that were were there in the first movie. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit lighter. I mean, that that other movie felt like an R-rated film. I don't think it was. I think it was like PG-13. This is PG-13, and it's much more uh, family-friendly is maybe not the right term, but you can watch it with your kid and laugh at it because it is so silly. It's, it's, it's really overtly silly. It embraces the silliness. I think in the previous movie there was just a tonal um, confusion about you know how to tackle the material. Uh, and I think it didn't know what it was. And I think, uh, after the movie came out, it was a huge success, uh, against like, I think most people's, uh, you know, perceptions that it would do as well as it did. So I think this is just a pivot towards making it, uh, a little bit, um, sweeter, a little bit sillier, uh, less, uh, kind of bilious in its, in its darkness. Uh, and, uh, making it uh, more, I, I say this in the, in the review, it's like a bromance. It's a relationship. It's like a buddy movie. It's a relationship movie. And uh, it's, that's, I think, part of the charm and humor of it is that it's uh, Eddie Brock, who's played by Tom Hardy, uh, struggling with uh, trying to make their relationship, their odd couple relationship work, he and yeah, let, Venom. And let me explain that. Now, Venom is a, Mar for those of you who don't know, is a Marvel Comics character I don't remember exactly what year he was first introduced in, in the Spider-Man series. It was the like 80s sometime. It's like an alien symbiote that sort of looks like black, like not an African-American Spider-Man, but like a, a colored black Spider-Man. And, he, and, he, and it's, 
you know, he's kind of like this this enormous spider monster who takes over or shares a body with this guy Eddie Brock played by Tom Hardy who he possesses basically and they 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 yeah they're like he's an alien symbiote that's but the it, uh, that's the conceit that's the conceit and in the first movie the, this alien symbiote uh didn't really have I mean it's just more of like you know like the our our concept of hor- horrific aliens there's no uh, desire more than just survival and so I think in this one now there's a more of an attempt to give him a, a, a sort of conscience and uh, a moral compass. And weirdly enough, Venom uh, actually listens to uh, Eddie Brock when Eddie Brock says, "You can't kill people. You cannot cannibal. You can't eat people uh, um, when you're hosting when you're hosting inside of my body." And so Venom weirdly agrees and. Um, you know, they they figure out he needs to get this sort of chemical that's produced in brains and also in chocolate. So he's eating a lot of chickens and chocolate. And that's the, the joke. About yeah, I was, was going to ask, survive. what are they doing? There? Are they feeding him goats or something? Chickens. I know. Basically, no, it's chickens, which is dumb, you know, but uh, whatever. That's and, and then they have uh, a couple pet chickens as a sort of sight gag. Um, but, you know, anyway, so they they basically explain this is how Venom can live without eating people's heads but then every so often he is given permission eddie brock gives him permission to eat people's heads if they're really bad people oh that's good and so there's a bad guy carnage is your bad guy and he's sort of an also an alien symbiote uh and he and but the human he possesses is played by woody harrelson who knows how to chew a scene in a in a big blockbuster when he has to especially one where he's playing a serial killer you know um because this is kind of classic natural born killer, um, you know, kind of casting, especially since there's a romance that uh, he has with this woman um, who is, uh, I, I guess, uh, called Shriek. Naomi Harris plays his character, Francis Barrison, who is, I guess, canonical Marvel character. And um, she shrieks really loudly and hurts people's ears. And that's what she does. She shrieks. And so they call her Shriek. I've had relatives like that. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so there's this romance between the two of them, but they're also totally psychotic and don't care about their they, they don't have a conscience. And so suddenly Venom is a slightly more heroic, interesting character than he was in the last movie, where they, you really didn't have that kind of delineation as cleanly as you do here. So it's easier to root for him and, and feel uh, like he's a bit of an underdog. Also, weirdly enough, Carnage is technically Venom's son, or at least speaks to Venom uh, and refers to him as father uh, because technically Venom, um, it's very, uh, how can I put it? Uh, Woody Harrelson's character bites Eddie Brock's finger and gets blood on his mouth and that has some of the symbiote in the blood and so it gets into Woody Harrelson's blood system. So I guess he gets infected by that. And because it's a progeny, it's weirdly more, it's stronger than the, 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 the parent of it. And that's actually, Venom says at one point, he goes, oh my God, he's red. And I think the red color also apparently signifies that. And he goes, oh, no, we can't fight him. We're going to lose, you know. Um, so that's well, it sounds, it sounds super dumb, but, super that's dumb. Okay. but that's okay. You know, and I, 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 um, I, I was surprised at your take on it, but, but you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to trust you on this one. You know, the other reviews have been really harsh, super snooty, 
And that made me think like, oh, people are going to see this by the by the millions. <laughs> it's going to yeah. be it's going to yeah. be very, yeah. very popular. And as well, we were, it was as we were just discussing, the movies are, are back pretty much nationwide. Uh, box office receipts are up. Uh, block blockbusters are busting the block again. And uh, this this is not going to be an exception to that. I think this will do well, and and just to wrap up, uh, you know, pointing out the the previous film was almost two hours long, uh, had tonal issues, it was all over the place, and I think it had um, aspirations to be something more meaningful. And this is very much, uh, let's keep it short. It's about 90 minutes long. Uh, we know what we are. We're not going to be deep. We're going to have fun and be silly, and it embraces that. It's not a great movie, but it's certainly not a bad movie, and it's fun. I, one more thing I wanted to point out: uh, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, is directed by Andy Serkis, of all people, are the world's greatest motion capture actor. Played Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, and the and and Caesar and Pl- the Planet of the Apes movies. He he's he's excellent at playing non-human characters, and he actually was there something in, he has some writer in his contract that said he had to direct a superhero movie <laughs> he's also a marvel cinematic universe actor he plays a sort of a minor character an, an arms dealer in that in that in, in black panther yeah he's one of the few white guys in black panther and uh he is i think he's a really fun mischievous a- actor he's been knocking around for a while acting uh you know in mocap suits as well as just as himself and he direct he's he's actually started he started directing movies a few years back uh i saw like a low budget indie movie that he directed so um he's a charming guy i think he comes across that way and he's certainly talented knows how to direct a scene and and make it fun and um i think i think i would like to think that he brought a lighter touch to the material than it had before All right, Venom Let There Be Carnage is in theaters now. Steven, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. All right, so let's talk about Foundation, which is a series currently airing on Apple TV+, which you probably have if you got an iPhone within the last year. They gave it a year of Apple TV Plus away for free. Foundation is a, I guess, a long-awaited, although I haven't really been waiting for it, adaptation of the classic Isaac Asimov sci-fi series, which he largely wrote in the 40s and 50s and early 60s. And it's a very intellectual, it's a very cerebral series of sci-fi books about the creation of a galactic super encyclopedia far in the future because some mathematician prophesizes using advanced math that the global empire that rules the Milky Way is going to fall. Okay, it's a very sci-fi premise, and that prem- they do establish that premise uh, in, in the show, but there are substantial differences between the, book, uh, the books and the show. The show, it's made by a guy named David S. Goyer, who wrote the Dark Knight trilogy and Batman v. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and so... His vision of things tends to tinge very dark, both uh, in terms of the visual look of the show, which is very dark, and also just the content is very dark. And it, you know, he had to adapt. He wants to make this into a multi-season arc, so he had to take what was essentially a um, psycho-history, they even call it a psycho-history, of the universe and turn it into something with a plot. And so he 
creates these characters or expands on these characters that are in the foundation book. The foundation books were written in the 50s, so there weren't people of color. There really weren't a lot of women with any substantial role. And the main two characters, as far as I can tell in the current show, are both sort of non-binary women of color. Okay, so that's entertainment for now. But the, the show itself is, um, you know, it's kind of dull. There isn't a lot of action. The action that um, does occur tends to be fairly passive. You kind of watch it, but it doesn't really directly involve anybody on screen and you know the there are relationships but there's some but the sex is very boring and there's uh there are unexplained time jumps at least in the first two episodes there's narration that kind of comes out of nowhere people act in ways that don't seem lined up with the characters that we've been presented so far this guy's trying to do a lot and in some ways it's both too slow and too rushed he's trying you know he, he wants to um wants to pay homage to the original books, but also realizes that no one really cares anymore. It's kind of a mess. There are some things that I liked about Foundation. There is this concept of imperial cloning. There's this galactic empire, and it's ruled by a guy named Cleon who exists, who's, who clones himself, and so he like rules as this triumvirate. One's like a grown man, one's an older guy, and the other one's like this little kid. And they all sit on these thrones, and they, they're the same person, but at different stages of development, so they have different points of view, but they kind of rule as one. So that's kind of interesting. There's also like a, an advisor, Android, I guess they call it, a, you call it a woman, but she's very gender fluid. She's female presenting, as you say. She's played by a female actress, uh, and she's kind of an interesting character. Um, and I'd like, you know, whenever those characters are on screen, I'm kind of interested. But then it goes to these um, these rebels. There's this mathematician and his followers who are exiled from the Empire. They have to go build some outposts where they have to create their super library. They're all very boring. They're all very self-righteous. I, they're, it's not very interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of talk being made about the big budget for the show. And, yeah, there's elaborate sets and stuff. But, you know, the spaceships to me kind of felt like... Uh, I just kept thinking of Spaceballs, Mel Brooks' Spaceballs, and, and that's not um, the thing you want viewers to be thinking about when you're watching a sci-fi show, you know, the ultimate parody of sci-fi shows. So, you know, this this uh, show pales in comparison to shows it's been, comp- uh, it's been compared to, like The Expanse, which is much better and more exciting and has similar themes, or Battlestar Galactica, which... To me, fell apart in the later seasons, but it's still super, uh, super exciting and iconic. And even Game of Thrones, which had you know a disastrous ending, but it had all kinds of um, zip and wit and uh, swashbuckle to it. This show has no swashbuckle. It has no swash. It has no buckle. It's extremely dull. And I, I somehow don't think that uh, David S. Goyer is going to get his. Eight seasons, 80 hours of this. I can't imagine. I, I, I struggled watching two hours of Foundation. I can't imagine who's going to watch 80. I'm Neil Pollock, and this is Broken Film Globe. And now on to the television portion of our show. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. To talk about what's on your streaming services this week, we have Pablo Gallaga. Welcome back to the show, Pablo. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you wrote about a show on Netflix this week, uh, a 
sort of a psychological horror drama called Midnight Mass, and you had nothing but good things to say about it. Yeah, it's uh, the next one from Mike Flanagan, who did The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor, if you've seen those on Netflix as well. Uh, he is pretty much the Stephen King uh, adapter. Like, he has uh, adapted Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep, so you may know him from there. And this actually feels very much like a Stephen King story, even though it is it is not. And it's set in, like, a small town in the Northeast, like a fishing on a fishing island? Yeah, just like every Stephen King story is, like, in the... I, I don't know if it's exactly off of the coast of Maine, but it, it's called... Uh, I think it's fictional. It's a Crockett Island. I don't know if that's a real place or not. Uh, and so you you mentioned uh, you talk about Mike Flanagan and you you know this is a uh, sort of a horror mystery psychological horror uh, show but you know Mike Flanagan is a real writer's writer in a lot of ways and the thing you point out about the show that you liked the most were was not necessarily the the creepiness or the jump scare moments but the the monologues the character monologues that the the uh, the uh, various people would go off on. Yeah, definitely. Like, I didn't feel like the series was scary at all relative to even Haunting of Hill House, which did have its moments. Uh, but no, it's a lot of flowery speeches, definitely in the back half of the season. Or Well, this is a limited series, so in the last, uh, what is it, three episodes or so. Uh, yeah, a lot of ruminations on what it is to die, uh, what the afterlife might be like. And all of that is kind of underscored by this backdrop of uh, you know, the dangers of groupthink and echo chambers. So it's it's kind of like uh, those two things in contrast. Yeah, and he does the same, Flanagan did the same thing in The Haunting of Hill House, which is, you know, obviously an adaptation uh, in some ways of the classic uh, Shirley Jackson novel, but it updates it. But there's also like a lot of deep character work, and that is what distinguishes his his work from other other show creators. Yeah, the characters here feel a bit more two-dimensional, like you would kind of expect from a Stephen King story, where you've got, like, the person who's uber-religious, you've got the person who's just the blue-collar worker, you know, it's that sort of thing. Uh, but it, it does give them some time to, you know, talk, and then you kind of get to know them a little bit better, uh, you know, despite, you know, maybe their actions not being more, you know, in-depth like they would have been in Haunting of Hill House. But I do remember the the um, speech at the end of Hill House, the, the rest is confetti, is just something that has stayed with me forever since that show. Yeah, I mean, that it, it really, that's a, a gut punch at the end of that thing. Um, I, I, you know, you make, you don't, obviously you didn't, Midnight Mass doesn't have, quite have the same resonance maybe, uh, but, but you, you seem to think that it's got a, a similar vibe. Yeah, like those characters just kind of, getting an opportunity to go off and talk about bigger ideas in flowery ways. I think it's it's something that will stay with people, especially if they've, you know, maybe had a loss recently and you know, want to, you know, have something that kind of talks about those ideas. All right. Well, there we go. It's Midnight Mass on Netflix, a, a show about death and loss. And I know you can't wait to tune in for that right right after <laughs> right after streaming your, your latest episode of Ted Lasso. Uh, go Bible. to church. Yeah, please go. Definitely, definitely go to church before it's too late. Uh, Pablo, thank you so much. We'll we'll talk to you soon. We'll be featuring your writing again soon as well. Thank you, Neil. All right. All right. Thanks to Pablo Gallaga for talking to us about Midnight Mass. Thanks also to Stephen Garrett and to Chris Farnsworth for contributing this week. So nice to have everyone on. So nice to have you all listening. I'm Neil Pollock the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. 
I hope you read the site. I hope you enjoyed the show. Midnight Mass was the last thing we talked about. So we're going to close with my favorite Midnight song. There are so many choices. Midnight Rambler. I'm going to wait until the Midnight Hour. But I like Patsy Cline singing Walking After Midnight. And I'm sure you do too. Have a good week. We'll talk to you soon. always value books and films and good TV, but now during a pandemic, I appreciate them, I need them more than ever. That's why I read Book and Film Globe. Bookandfilmglobe.com is the smartest, sharpest commentary about what's good and what's um, not good in the worlds of books, movies, and quality TV. This isn't celebrity gossip, and it's not for woke 22-year-olds. It's just smart, clear writing about the best new things to watch and read. Interviews with directors, concise reviews of hot new books, actors describing classic scenes. It's all on bookandfilmglobe.com. And there are three Rotten Tomatoes certified reviewers, so you know you're getting good advice. Check out Book and Film Globe. That's bookandfilmglobe.com. <laughs>